from the Alexa in your kitchen to the smart TV in the bedroom. You've got smart devices peppered all over the house. So wouldn't it make sense to place the best tech in every part of your home? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. With advanced technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing, it offers personalized setting, from ambient colored lighting and built-in audio speaker system to a heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews. So you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Uh, hey guys, uh, my guest today, Andrew Ujafusa, is somebody who I have been wanting to have on the show for a long time. Uh, we actually worked together a long time ago, uh, now back in college on the school paper. Um, I was the editor-in-chief. He was a sports editor. We are not talking about sports today. He's now a great education journalist. Um, and we had a conversation that's about the critical race theory debate. Uh, most of the coverage of this I've seen has either gone like way off into the academic weeds, uh, you know, talking about like critical critical race theory scholars, or it's gotten super political looking at sort of Republican Party tactics and their machinations. Um, Andrew, you know, really it helps us understand in this conversation what is actually happening inside schools and school systems, what the pressures are on educators, what parents' concerns are, and what implications all of this has for kids and for society, uh, what really matters here, and frankly, the extent to which it, it maybe doesn't matter so much compared to some other things. Um, we got a little a little wide ranging at the end, but I, I think that's what's always good in these kind of conversations. Uh, so here we go. Check it out. Andrew Ujafusa. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Andrew Ujafusa, is a uh, assistant editor at Education Week. He covers Congress, sort of federal politics in an education context. Uh, is here with me today to talk about critical race theory, which I understand you've been speaking to a lot of people about these days. Folks seem very interested in this subject. It's blown up, right? Yes, they're very interested. They have strong feelings, you could say, about uh, that topic and related topics. And so when we say that people are getting interested in critical race theory. When I was in college, I, I was a philosophy major. We had some class and we read some excerpts from uh, Derek Bell's book, Faces from the Bottom of the Well. And we read uh, someone, I think Matsuda's like critique of Supreme Court free speech jurisprudence. But I take it that that is not really what they're talking about, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I, I think like a lot of things in politics, you look for terms that capture sort of a broader universe of what you're concerned about, right? And some of this deals with efforts in schools to address issues around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Like, how do we incorporate different perspectives into lessons about history? How do we make sure we're considering different factors, different historical forces that 
you know, maybe are outside the quote unquote mainstream that may be informative for students. And some of it deals with that. Some of it, you know, just deals with national politics and how people perceive at least that that is impacting what schools do uh, from classroom teachers to school administrators, which I think in some cases is an important distinction to make. But I think that there are various different forces at work and critical race theory has sort of become this catch-all term for different concerns that people have about what schools are doing. Right, because I sometimes see liberals being very, um, I don't know, like they're doing a term paper and kind of being, well, that's not what critical race theory is, right? But this is like a catch-all term for the idea that there have been changes to educational practice over the past one, five, 20 years that have something to do with racial equity and people who object to some or all of that, they want a phrase for it, right? Like if you're trying to like do politics, it's like useful to have a label for the people that you're arguing with. Yes, I think there have been shifts in classroom practice. And, you know, I think in the past, as you put it, five, 10, 20 years, there's been an increasing uh, focus on equity in policy and sort of broader policy as we think about it in terms of what the federal government focuses on. You can find that, and if you wish, everything like No Child Left Behind to approaches the federal government takes to civil rights issues. So yes, I think this has become something where people find it a useful way to talk about things, not just in classroom practice, but in policy in the federal government. Uh, which is obviously easier to, quote unquote, politicize in ways that are useful for people who are looking for leverage. But so this is an interesting distinction. I mean, we did an episode on this show uh, sort of looking back at No Child Left Behind recently. I listened to it. I, I enjoyed it very much. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in the NCLB era, there was a lot of talk about the achievement gap and even some rhetoric to the effect of this was the civil rights issue of our time. And if you look at like the formal properties of that, that is a discussion of racial equity. But it's like different different groups of people using different terms and espousing different ideas, even as on some level they're talking about the same thing, right? I think that's right. They are talking about the same general thing in terms of like how do we address these inequities in, in society and in schools? What are those inequities? Um, there are different types of inequities, of course, ranging from academic achievement to civil rights. And, and how do we address them, right? So different movements of these sorts tend to be working, you know, often behind the scenes or not very prominently for a long time. Um, and then they suddenly come into public view and, and capture public attention. And I think what you're describing sort of happened with No Child Left Behind, where, you know, obviously you had very powerful government officials working on this stuff. So it wasn't just some sort of stealth movement where nobody knew what was going on. But as you guys discussed on that episode, it dates back to a nation at risk, that report from the 1980s that sort of raised anxiety about American schools and their uh, how much they were helping the nation in terms of economic competitiveness. I think it might be illegal, actually, for education reporters to discuss this stuff without mentioning a nation at risk. <laughs> but, you know, various forces combined with that and different people worked on it on a bipartisan basis to produce No Child Left Behind. And the idea, which I think still holds a fair amount of sway on Capitol Hill, if you talk to powerful Democrats, is that you have to shine a light on this stuff. Without that light, if you take that flashlight away of, you know, sort of accountability and assessments, um, these uh, black and brown students are going to 
suffered. Uh, they're going to be neglected. So yeah, that was one way that folks talked about educational equity. But as you said, this is a very different moment. And not all of that is due to sort of no child left behind fatigue. Um, you know, that law was revised, gosh, about uh, six years ago now. So 2015. So we're kind of past that. But I, I think that, that fatigue has something to do with it. Well, and then this is where I think there's a turn, right? Because as No Child Left Behind is happening, as all this testing is happening, there are various strands of criticism of that. And one strand, I think, is in a meaningful way informed by academic critical race theory, which is to say that it's wrong to, like, blame schools or teachers and like say, oh, you're not doing a good enough job to teach kids, but to say that, no, that this is structural racism, right? This is like a bigger fact of our society that we are seeing here. Or even Ibram Kendi makes the striking claim that like the idea of an achievement gap is a racist idea, that this is like an excuse to not give black adults full opportunity in society. And so you have a conversation that's also about racial equity, but it's a different conversation from the like testing and accountability conversation. Yeah. So I think if you talk to a lot of people who supported No Child Left Behind and things like that, they say the reason we have these assessments is to shine a light. And then, but the point isn't just to shine a light, it's to say, Here's what these students need. Yeah, uh, we want something. states and districts to get do something, get involved. Uh, there's a certain amount of trust involved in that, but it's not total trust in just saying you can do whatever you want, educators and states, because then we wouldn't need these tests. But shine a light. Uh, we'll give you uh, resources that we think are adequate or sufficient, and then you have to do something about it, right? We want to see improvement. And I think the argument that you just described, which takes a very different view, is yes, these tests reveal something, but they don't lead to anything productive and that they almost act as like a shaming device for black and brown kids and, and their communities as to all the challenges they face that have been put in place by American society in, in general. And so there was a strand of that. I think, as you've indicated, it's become more prominent. You know, again, I don't want to overstate the power of that view, which has gotten more prominence. Uh, if you talk to folks in Congress, you know, I don't think anyone would describe Patty Murray or Bobby Scott as uh, right wing or anything like that. But if you talk to them, that you will not convince them that those tests are not important, that they view those tests as a civil rights measure, uh, as a civil rights tool. And that view isn't so trendy right now, but it's still prevalent among some people in power. And, and that's where, you know, it, it gets challenging to sort of get your arms around some of this larger conversation about, I don't know what you want to call it exactly, but like, I don't know, like left wing stuff in schools, which is that what there's like 100,000 schools in America. And then each of them has like lots of different people working in them. There's like lots of lots of stuff happens in education and you can completely fill your Twitter feed or some articles somewhere with unrepresentative items if you want to. I like read a lot of stuff about like parents and board meetings and, you know, like this. Oh, this, you're the this, one. Okay. This chum that's out there. <laughs> but then I also like I have a child in public school in an urban district. And 
reality is just like much more normal than the news coverage is. And yet if I go hunting to be like, okay, like what is in, you know, if I go to the DCPS website, then there's an equity framework protocol. And then it has like this footnote here with a link to the continuum on becoming an anti-racist multicultural institution. And I could like screenshot like the weirdest thing that's on that page and be like, this is what DCPS is doing. And, you know, probably like, go to a Manhattan Institute event, but like also just like as a parent at DCPS, like that's not really what the school is like. Well, so this is the power of the anecdote, right? And as you just described with tens of thousands of schools, there are so many anecdotes, right? Or potential anecdotes. So, you know, let me throw a couple of numbers at you. So in the midst of all this interest or controversy, whatever you want to call it, you know, Education Week, we did a nationally represented survey about how educators, you know, like teachers and principals, in public schools feel about this stuff in, in general. And what we found was that about a third said, you know, certain conversations about sexism and racism, the type of stuff that these, you know, quote unquote, anti-critical race theory bills deal with are not appropriate uh, for schools, you know, to engage with or deal with. They're sort of taking the side of those state lawmakers. A lot. I, I don't want to make the link too strong there. And 59% they believe systemic racism exists in American society. Now that's a majority, but it's not like 95%, right? So I think educators have lots of different thoughts on this stuff. And it's easy to characterize public school teachers as, you know, sort of these left-wing types that are just only too eager to incorporate all these ideas from academia that are decades old. But I think, as you indicated, it's more complicated than that in a way that might defy stereotypes, Right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of public school teachers in America, right? So it can like both be true that they are on average to the left of the median voter. But there's also an incredible diversity of people working in public schools and things that they think about stuff. Yes, exactly. And in 2017, we did a, a similar survey of uh, educators, not just teachers, but educators in general. And we found that about 30% uh, voted for Trump. So again, you don't want to say that like, None of these people voted for Trump, and you don't want to say a lot of them did necessarily. So it's more complicated than the partisans on this stuff want to admit. And that's sort of one of the arguments that you hear essentially is when educators are saying, hey, we don't teach critical race theory, which, you know, people have various responses to, and there's more to say about it than just leaving it at that. But they're sort of saying, hey, we're not doing the sort of outlandish stuff that, as you were indicating, people can cherry pick from websites or whatever. Like that's this is a, a little simplistic, but they're saying, hey, we're doing normal stuff. <laughs> like this is we're doing stuff that that you know parents are largely familiar with, you know, when they think about history class or whatever. Right. Okay. Let's take a break and, and then I want to come back to the other side of that question. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So then an issue that, I mean, I know a lot of parents who I know who are less engaged in this debate have is, well, if the argument is like we're not in fact, doing anything weird. What do these laws actually say or do that merits pushback? I mean, you know, like it would be strange for the state of Tennessee to like ban bringing live elephants into public schools, but also fine, right? Because like nobody's doing that, right? Unless the circus is in town, yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, you could make fun of somebody for like getting into hysteria about something that's fake, but you could also be like upset that somebody is passing a law that's pernicious and is going to force drastic changes that you think are bad. There's a lot of states and a lot of laws, but a lot of the ones that I've seen, they're like, Okay, we need to stop critical race theory. And by critical race theory, we mean saying that all white people are inherently evil. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, they're probably not saying that in school. Like, who cares? Well, so let's return to what these laws say. And I want to be careful because... Let's be careful. Careful is good. Careful is excellent. So, you know, I I want to draw a distinction, for example, between how laws treat how students should feel or certain actions they should take, for example, or certain declarations they should make. I think that it's one thing, some of these laws say, like, you know, students shouldn't be compelled to make certain declarations or take certain actions in the classroom about how I'm a white male, so therefore I'm part of the oppressor class. And if I'm someone else, I'm part of the oppressed class. You know, and I don't think that there would be a lot of objection in isolation to The idea that students shouldn't be compelled to do those things that, you know, would obviously make many, if not all of them, feel uncomfortable. And they would come home and say, hey, I had to do this thing and I don't understand why. And then parents would get very upset. I think the more pertinent issue is how some of the laws deal with concepts that they view as divisive, you know, and and not about student actions or declarations they have to make, but, you know, just sort of these concepts in history that sort of, hey, that's sort of 
subverts American ideals. And so we don't want that in our schools. That's, that's sort of the, the message in some of these bills. I, I should say that, you know, for example, Oklahoma has passed, a, I think, a relatively sweeping version of this so-called anti-CRT stuff that a lot of people are concerned about. But the law also says this law can't be construed to, you know, sort of subvert the state's history standards, um, sort of the content standards. And so one of those history standards as we and others have reported, is, hey, you have to teach students about the race riots, the awful racist massacre in Tulsa in 1921. So, you know, a teacher might say, okay, I have this law on the books about, you know, divisive concepts and stuff, but then I have to deal with teaching students about Tulsa. That's potentially difficult. I think, you know, we talked to educators in Oklahoma who are concerned about that. And then there's also the potential for folks to willfully or not sort of misinterpret what these laws cover. There's been controversy in recent days about, you know, parents um, sort of picking up on um, an anti-CRT or whatever you want to call it law and saying, hey, we don't like Ruby Bridges and her situation is being taught in schools. And so, you know, are Republican lawmakers in that state going to step in and say, no, no, that's not what we meant. That's going too far. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. But I think there's confusion that's being created intentionally or not on that end, too. Right. Because part of this is that there's like a broad spectrum of parents in the school system. It's hard to make a curriculum choice that's not going to like annoy somebody. Like I had one dad who was like, I don't know why exactly he was so fired up about this, but like he really felt that some Black History Month thing was like exaggerating George Washington Carver's achievements in agronomy. And I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> like, who cares? This is just like what you do in February. Well, that may be a little more obscure than some of the other issues we're dealing with, but okay. No, right. But I just mean, it's like, it's like such a banal thing and such a like commonplace of education. And, you know, look, it's like you're trying to have a divert. You're trying to show people there's like role models in all kinds of fields and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then like, I don't know, this guy, he's like up on his high horse about it. And it is like probably good that there isn't some legislative hook that like random cranks can turn things into a big case out of. On the other hand, like I was digging through the footnotes of the DCPS equity framework, and it's like if you follow enough links, you get to the continuum on becoming an anti-racist multicultural organization where at the highest phase of anti-racism, you actively work in larger communities to eliminate all forms of oppression. And it's not that like anyone's going to say oppression is good, but what is definitely true is that you have people with left-wing political commitments, sort of reading that into, like, here's what we have to do to be tolerant and inclusive. And you can just like, you can see why that doesn't work. Like, I don't know, like, these are public institutions in conservative states. And it just seems almost inevitable to me that like, they're going to have to reflect the worldview of the people who live in Oklahoma. Yes, these are, in some sense, it's accurate to call these systems a bureaucracy. And if you read what Christopher Rufo has said, who is very closely linked to, you know, these anti-critical race theory efforts, he has said, look, one of my main aims here is to sort of change how these bureaucracies think and how they work. To, I don't know, subvert them is the right term. And so schools, in one view, are these bureaucracies that 
if they're not representative of the people in the state and education is state function, we don't have a federal or national school system and all that stuff, then I think that's part of what's going on here. I want to raise a, a couple things. Maybe one way to think about this is to look at another policy that people aren't bringing up with respect to critical race theory a lot, but it's police and schools. Let's talk about that for a second. So many years ago, I don't think in Washington, at least, and probably lots of other places too, I don't think it was especially controversial, uh, the idea that you would have school resource officers police in schools. I, I don't want to say that no one was opposed to it. I think there were concerns about it, but it wasn't like this hot button political issue. And there were folks in the teachers unions who supported it. But now I think due to what's happened in the last few years, there's a lot of pushback among Democrats in Washington and elsewhere to police in schools. Um, some of that is the work of longtime activists, but the view has basically become in, in many circles like, hey, these police officers represent um, a threat to the safety of black and brown students in many cases. Um, and so we want them out, right? They, they are an exemplar in the view of these folks of systemic racism, of systemic prejudice that hurts uh, black and brown students, right? So, you know, I don't want to overstate how popular that view is. I think a lot of educators support the idea of police in schools. And that gets at the idea of child safety um, and child protection, which is, uh, I think, connected to what you were saying about what parents want. I think a lot of these parents are saying, you know, in, in varying degrees, like, hey, I don't want my child either in, in terms of physical safety, but also in terms of sort of the identity that, you know, they bring to school and that, you know, they bring from, from me and as a, you know, a member of my family and stuff. We don't want schools undermining that. We want students to be protected from those sorts of forces that threaten their identity that they get from outside of school. And that's sort of a long way of saying this is a culture war issue, right? So that's a long-winded way of sort of getting at your question. But I think those two things are helpful things for folks to think about. But so the nationalization and centralization of this is all interesting because, you know, you were talking about, you know, conservatives see these school systems as bureaucracies that in some cases they may want to subvert or they don't like them. In certain instances, yeah, there's a distrust. Right. A few years ago, you know, I, I don't I don't cover education full time, so I only <laughs> I only see these things when people get fired up. I feel like the debate was like the opposite of this, right? There was this effort to create more centralized curriculum standards, and conservatives were really upset about it. And they wanted uh, localization and autonomy. And also the more ambitious conservative ideas were like, well, there should be more school choice, right? It should be more like everybody's doing what they want and very much not like, well, we should have like a big meeting where the state legislature is like, here's how you have to be teaching things. Right. I think some folks have, have pointed out the hypocrisy of Republican state lawmakers getting together. And, and I would just say a change of emphasis. No, 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 no hypocrisy. <laughs> no, no. Well, a sort of a shifting, evolving views. So there's that out there. I think many people have made that point. But I think there you were referring to the Common Core state standards, right? So, so let's talk about that. So Common Core was this interesting issue where it came out of this consensus, not dissimilar consensus that drove things like No Child Left Behind, where you had school accountability, you had assessments to measure students' progress and where they stood. And then you have these standards, which are basically, it's a very dry technical subject that somehow became this 
national controversy where it's like, this is what students should know and when they should know it, right? And how you get there is curriculum. That's something different. But so it was adopted by the vast majority of states and, you know, sort of enjoyed elite backing from governors and, and the business community. So there are some, a fair number of people who were influential Republicans who initially thought this was good in addition to sort of mainstream Democrats. But, you know, as you say, that consensus sort of fell apart and, and conservatives associated it with the federal government. And they said, hey, this is uh, not something that uh, the Obama administration should be pushing or forcing down um, schools' throats. And, you know, I think that there are, as you know, there are plenty of supporters of school choice among people who are, I guess, left of center, right? Now, what that support for school choice looks like can, can vary depending on what the program is. But among some folks who are liberals, there's also sort of a distrust of the state and local educational systems that have nothing to do with the stuff that, you know, Christopher Rufo or Tucker Carlson is talking about, you know, but just sort of saying, hey, these systems are not doing right by poor black and brown kids. So they should have more options instead of waiting for the system to be reformed. I don't know if that answers your question. To me, it's like, I like things to be logical and, you know, have their kind of tidy boxes. And it just strikes me, it strikes me that there's something procedurally odd about like sweeping in with laws that are like, here are things that you cannot teach, rather than to say, what I think would seem much more like natural to like, normie liberals be like okay we're gonna have a meeting and at the a process and this process is gonna say like here are the standards for what it is that we are going to teach and you know if you put together some like here's what the history curriculum is gonna look like and that history curriculum did not include a new york times magazine special issue that ran in 2019 nobody would be like well that's crazy you know, like it's just a history curriculum. But when you come in one day and you're like, I want to pass a law banning the mention of this New York Times special issue, then people are like, well, that's weird. Like, that's a weird way to run a school system, right? Well, so let me bring a bit of history to this. About 30 years ago, there was a blue ribbon commission sort of put together to look at creating national history standards, like not, not like a federally required thing, but national history standards. And a lot of very smart, knowledgeable people involved. And one of the most prominent members was Lynn Cheney, wife of Dick, mother of Liz. And, you know, these people worked a long time on these standards. They had a lot of sort of influential backing. And then because of concerns or anger about how they treated, you know, Ulysses S. Grant versus, you know, the Red Scare under Joseph McCarthy, it all fell apart. And everyone walked away from it and said, that was terrible. That was awful. Lynn Cheney repudiated it, right? Very prominently in the Wall Street Journal. She's sort of submarined it. So I wonder what Liz Cheney today would think about the need for sort of national history standards and what people should know about history and civics. But, you know, so there's that. And there's also, we got a bit of a preview of this in a couple of instances with the Common Core when one of the authors said, you know, in discussing why he got involved with the Common Core, hey, I wanted to provide um, disadvantaged kids the same kind of opportunities I got as a relatively privileged white student, uh, the same opportunities, the same access to a quality of education. And conservative media um, latched onto that and said, he wrote the Common Core to undermine white privilege, right? And that was sort of a little boomlet of a news story. And then also a few years ago, we had controversy over advanced placement U.S. history standards and folks expressing concerns that they were, to use a 
shorthand term, too negative, right, about American history. So this stuff is it's always percolating, like it never goes away. This is just like a very explosive and very, I guess, as you've been saying, sort of odd manifestation of it. And also, like, if you look back to last year, these laws, you couldn't find them. There was a little bit of like sort of model legislation about like, hey, we don't want teachers doing left-wing ideology in school, sort of indoctrinating students. But you're right that this has sort of exploded, not out of nowhere, but just this stuff wasn't around a year ago in terms of what state lawmakers were talking about. We should also talk about where it came from, because I, I think this is to the point, right? It's people are always arguing about, like, how should we talk about American history, right? Like, historians argue about it. That's, like, why they have conferences where guys with PhDs talk and, you know, and the public argues and legislators argue. And it's usually not like the front burner of American politics, but it is a thing that people disagree about. But Chris Rufo, he started in the waning days of the Trump administration, this big push to get a ban on what he called critical race theory in executive branch staff trainings, right? Like that was his thing. And then after Trump left office, he pivoted this concept to state legislatures and school boards and education systems. But like, this is new. Whereas the like, how should we talk about America and, and history is is old. And he very effectively put it to the, the front burner. And you know, one thing, I mean, I always try to talk about with all kinds of political debates is like there's a mode in which people are trying to make policy changes and they say like, here are my concerns. And then the other side can say, well, here are my concerns. And then you can try to see like, can we reconcile these concerns? Can we reach consensus? But we are in like not that mode, right? Like this is the mode where Republican Party politicians see an advantage in pressing this. And so they welcome conflict on these points, right? Like they don't they don't want to lower the temperature and make incremental gains. They want to get people showing up to the meeting to, you know, ask tough questions about the superintendent. Yes. And I think that if you look at what Trump talked about with respect to education when he entered office, it was stuff you would expect based on recent history of education. Like, hey, Common Core is bad, school choice is good, right? Conservatives at that point were very comfortable with that message, and it was sort of what was being talked about. As you say, he, he left office sort of talking about, hey, we need patriotic education, and all these public schools are doing left-wing indoctrination in, in history class. And if you look at the language of some of these, again, so-called anti-critical race theory bills, Several of them incorporate directly the language of Trump's executive order, effectively banning diversity trainings uh, in the federal government, so that sort of stuff. So there is a pretty straight line between Trump's actual language in that executive order and these bills that I don't think should be underestimated. But yes, I think that these laws are, are very aggressive. Again, I don't know if the people passing them are very concerned about parsing out all the differences and how people react to them and what they think they can do under them and how they impact the work of actual classroom teachers. And, and you know, on the other side of the coin, you have the national teachers unions who are leaning into this, um, who are saying, hey, you know, we're prepared to support legal challenges of teachers who feel like these laws are improper and affecting their work in improper ways, right? I don't know if they would have done the same thing two or three decades ago. They are saying, 
we're going to really put our shoulder into this. We're not going to be intimidated by people we view as sort of ginning this up out of nothing and making our work hard and creating all this, this outrage. So, you know, I think both sides are leaning into it, even though you have Randy Weingarten, who's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, who does not shy away from fights saying, hey, critical race theory is not a thing in K-12 schools. And again, that leads to all sorts of arguments and discussions. So both sides are like saying, hey, let's let's fight. Right. <laughs> let's take another break. And, and then I want to widen the lens a little bit. We all need an upgrade every once in a while, whether it's that outdated car in your garage or that cell phone that you bought over three years ago. It's good to have the best technology around. And great news, because now you can have the most advanced technology in the privacy of your own home. The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. The smart toilet combines unmatched aesthetics with cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings that let you fine-tune every option to your exact preferences. From ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. Plus, the Numi 2.0 comes equipped with Power Saver Mode for energy efficiency and emergency flush for power outages, so you don't have to worry about wasted energy. Connecting you to an oasis of cleanliness and comfort, the Numi 2.0 can revolutionize your bathroom, making it more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. So, you know, I think one thing a puzzled person might wonder about this is like, whatever happened to like, we should teach kids like, I don't know, reading and math and, you know, they should like do better in school. Is anybody saying in a serious way that these laws that this controversy one way or another is like going to move the needle on like basic student learning outcomes that we have traditionally cared about? Like, you know, like how many, I don't know, like, are we training computer programmers? Are kids dropping out of high school? Like, basic education stuff? Is this, like, important? I thought you might ask that question. And I remember on uh, the Time Machine episode of No Child Left Behind, you were sort of joking at the end about, you know, being asked, like, what are schools for, right? And it's like, I don't don't know. What kind of a question is that, right? Um, But, you know, I don't think the argument is really about, you know, sort of how will this help students in 10 years have a good job with a good salary, with useful skills. I, I don't think that's necessarily the end of the discussion, though. People like to talk about, you know, how American kids' test scores are bad or they've stagnated and there are all sorts of reasons people can say about why that's important or not important. Usually it focuses on like math or English. But also if you look at recent history, the, the scores on civics tests, for example, are not good, like the share of kids who can't name basic elements of the American government is relatively high. And sometimes folks like sort of roll their eyes and are like, oh boy, you know, people think that's bad, right? But I also think it indicates that something worse is going on than just like, oh, these kids aren't being taught exactly what they should be in school. It's like, I think that has profound consequences for how they view their role as citizens. You know, as, as a colleague of mine put it, you know, like kids' lack of knowledge about history and civics is sometimes framed as like, well, that's a symptom of, you know, problems in society and how we don't understand how American society and government works. But, you know, what if that uh, lack of understanding that kids uh, have and, and how history classes fail them. What if that's a cause of society's, you know, broader ills and our disagreement about, you know, the direction of society? What if it's much more important 
for society instead of society influencing schools, right? And how poorly kids are doing on this stuff. And so if you think of it that way, and I'm not saying that's the only way to think about it, or that's how people should think about it. But if you think about it that way, that history classes have a profound impact on how students as adults engage as citizens, I think that puts it in a somewhat different light. Now, I, I do think that there's a certain class of people um, who are frustrated with the idea that this is what we're focusing on right now, um, when the, the federal government has sort of taken a step back from, you know, sort of trying to direct education policy uh, compared to several years ago. And I think those folks are also frustrated, frankly, that we're in the midst of a pandemic and the pandemic put schools in the spotlight like never before. And, you know, I think there's a general agreement that the pandemic's impact on education is going to be quite profound, if not disastrous for many students. And so there's a certain irony, and it's not maybe an especially funny one, but there is a certain irony that you have the pandemic and how all the attention and, and debate and anger it brought to schools and what to do about education. And then this issue has sort of, I don't want to say entirely superseded it, but has you know, sort of dominated headlines recently. I think the way the pandemic is not. That is definitely me. I mean, this is the camp that I am in. I mean, I think the like, do we need to reopen schools debate, like all partisan political debates in America, like often got a little crazy and a little detached from from the facts. But it was about something like obviously very important, right? Like both the public health and educational outcome sides of those school reopening controversies had really high stakes. And now I feel like whatever you made of that, we're left with a bunch of big questions about like learning loss and, you know, how can kids catch up and continued concerns about safety and, you know, different kinds of tra- like th- things with like big, obvious stakes. And, you know, education has always had to like fight for attention with with various other issues. And now a huge share of the like general purpose education coverage has come to be about this kind of thing that the participants in the debate themselves don't seem to believe there are particularly high stakes around these kinds of issues. And yet they're like really determined to fight to the death over them. But it's like some people are going to be starting high school having not done eighth grade or half of seventh grade in person. And I don't know, like (laughs) they got to learn reading. I sense you're concerned. Yes. It seems bad. I mean, also, you know, you talk about you mentioned like the civics, you know, I was looking at the uh, civics questions and. You know, there's like one, I don't know, they have a sample question and they're like asking you to explain like what Congress does, like very broadly. And it was like 50% correctly stated that Congress is the primary legislative power of the federal government. So we're, we're talking about questions that are like much like closer to the ground than these like big abstractions. And, you know, evidently a, a healthy number of students are struggling uh, at like the real basics in the civics and, and history space, which also seems worth talking about, perhaps more than like the outer edges of the curriculum. That's true. I think that if you struggle with the basics, then it becomes more difficult, if not impossible, to talk about um, sort of these things that are more abstract, still important, um, but that are more abstract and help people form their understanding of American history. I, I will say about the, the school 
closure debate, which is still going on, that, you know, a lot of the coverage and a lot of the discussion did focus on, um, to get back to an earlier part of our conversation, racial inequities, you know, including how many black and brown parents are um, still reluctant about the idea of just so going back to school in a normal way five days a week. And all the reasons that that might be, I think that gets at again, issues of trust around schools that are different than why, you know, a Republican state lawmaker might not have a great deal of trust in, in schools. So I think that e- even in coverage about that, over time, since the pandemic started here, you saw m- more and more of an emphasis on disparities and in, in who was returning to school, you know, and, and why that might be. So I don't want to say that that debate was sort of immune from the broader sort of considerations and education that we've we've been talking about. And there's a lot of anger about it, you know, sort of, you know, people who want schools open or mostly privileged white parents who are pretending to speak on behalf of the interests of, you know, black and brown parents and, you know, all the debate about that. We don't need to get into it, but that was that was a play as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just sort of part of my point is that, you know, it's not like the questions of racial equity that people are interested in are not implicated in these kind of bigger, more substantive things, right? But it's that, you know, I'm always frustrated, interested. You know, it's like what people love to do is like have a good political argument that doesn't require you to know anything about the specifics of the situation. And like school school reopening is like a tough one. It involves like public health. It involves like parent sentiment and like understanding trust and this and that and the other thing. And it's like the more you dig into it, because like at first, my first cut on this was like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like, you know, working class black and Latino kids are going to suffer the most from this and their parents don't have the childcare and this is so terrible. And then I started seeing the surveys and it's like, oh no, right? Like it's going the other way. It's like, Those families are actually more fearful of school reopening. Uh, Their communities are suffering more from the virus. And it's like, uh, now I'm not really sure what I should even say. Whereas it's like really easy to be like, America is good or we got to talk about justice. But it really matters how we like whether schools will be open in the fall. Like that seems quite consequential. Yes. And it also says something that it's. Not impossible, but it's often difficult to sort of talk about those things at the same time uh, in a way that gives them an appropriate weight. I don't want to turn this into a critique of the media. No, we should. The media is garbage. Well, but I think that when education, as you say, it has to fight for attention. Some people in the education field don't want it to get a lot of national attention, frankly. But often when it does, right, reporters feel most comfortable talking about it as part of the contours of a national political debate and like what groups are involved uh, with supporting this and who's funding it. But I I was at an event where, you know, the the sort of last question about this topic was like, well, you know, sort of educator focus, like what can they do? Like what are next steps when you're dealing with the controversy? Right. And so one of my points was, yeah, I think there are political forces at play here and people are looking for leverage and Virginia is sort of a proving ground for this because it has off your elections and it's right next to the beltway and all this stuff. But I said, you know, if you're an educator or school board member and you're dealing with this, might not be the best strategy to say to members of the public, hey, you're being manipulated by broader political force. And this is all about the Koch brothers of the Heritage Foundation. Those people are playing you. Probably that's sort of an obvious point I'm making, but I also like in terms of how this impacts educators and how they have to deal with it, might not be helpful for many of them to sort of say, well, 
this is the point that national stories are making about this. And so I'm just going to pick that up and use it when I'm dealing with the public. And I, I don't know if many educators are taking that approach per se on the ground, but, you know, I think that's something to consider too. You can't put it back in the bottle with these sorts of arguments. I don't know how long this is going to last. The impacts of the pandemic could easily outlast this controversy. I think many people think that it will. Um, and so what are we left with after that? You know, one thing I, I feel like in the Virginia context, you know, where this has gotten sort of ripest is that, you know, conservatives have started telling people that you should look for these like code words, right? And so like anything that mentions racial equity, you know, like is a sign that, that like secret critical race theory is happening. Right. Use your decoder ring and it'll tell you that, yes. I mean, I'm I'm being pejorative. It's not totally crazy because like it is true that what happens is that like communities of practice develop distinctive terminology. And it is true in particular, just like the use of the word equity to mean a particular kind of thing is probably a sign that, like, you have been talking to some left-wing people about stuff. It comes out of left-wing political circles. At the same time, like, the phenomenon that it refers to is something that conservatives have been talking about for a long time, right? Like, conservatives forever have been critiquing public schools and saying that, like, well, they're not doing a good job of educating Black and Latino kids, and, like, this is a big problem, and, like, this was George W. Bush's whole thing. It was, like... Trump's stated rationale for school choice at the beginning of his term. You're right that, like, teachers probably shouldn't scold parents and say, like, well, you're being manipulated. But it is also true that, like, you can get people really spun up about stuff such that, like, it's true, like, every school district in America is going to have some kind of an equity program, quote unquote. But, like, I don't know, that's just, like, the word they tell you to use in education schools. Well, I think beyond education schools, I think it's also the Obama administration you know, talked about it a lot. And so was the Biden administration, uh, for that matter. And I think that, you know, you mentioned conservatives, they like to talk about opportunity, right? How do we create more opportunity? And that's a, that's a different concept than equity. You create more opportunities through greater school choice. But opportunity isn't about outputs per se, necessarily or naturally, right? And equity is about inputs in a lot of cases, whether we're talking about funding or whether we're talking about you know, how we view different learning opportunities. You know, a lot of the concern about uh, equity in schools, for example, deals with, sure, the school might be, you know, socioeconomically integrated, but are a lot of black kids taking advanced coursework? Is it all white kids? You know, that's an issue of equity. So it's hard to disprove people who are saying all these other words that you use are really just sort of a, a stalking horse or an alias for what is essentially critical race theory. And to the extent you can't disprove that, I mean, what are people supposed to do? You know, I was talking with Kentucky's education commissioner about this, and he said, look, we're not functioning as the sort of legal defense team for, for critical race theory. Um, that's not our job. And, you know, he made it clear he didn't want it to be his job. But he also said, look, we are going to defend what we do on equity, and that's, you know, that involves racial equity. And I, I wonder... To what extent concerns about equity, you know, there's, there's a lot of research about how the public views things that they see as zero sum, right? If someone is winning, someone else is losing, that makes it much harder to advance something. And I wonder if equity has sort of been inflected with that. Like, well, that means someone else's kid is winning and your kid is somehow losing, 
right? That's very general, but maybe there's some of that at work too. Well, and I do think this is where you go to something that is more tangible and real than some of this, like, what can you teach in the classroom, which is that, you know, there have been a lot of controversies where people will look at, okay, who's in the gifted and talented program? Who's in the special high school, you know, where, where you need to get a high test score to go in, stuff like that. And people look at it and it's usually um, disproportionately white and Asian kids are in these programs. And then you have critics who say, from an equity standpoint, we either need to get rid of things that have that kind of disparate impact, or we need to change the standards. You know, we, we need to do something to increase diversity. And that, like, actually is zero sum, right? Like, you know, if you're saying, okay, we need to get more people from certain groups into this school, then, like, fewer people from other groups are going to be in. And that's tough politics. That's tough politics. And, and, you know, I think you might see some of the same people involved in you know, fighting that stuff in Northern Virginia, for example, involved in some of this anti-critical race theory stuff, right? I don't think that's much of a stretch, but I think that's a whole different complicated issue. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, I think that select high schools are not sort of a broad um, national education issue in many states. But I do think that what's going on now is is sort of a version of that where, you know, you sort people into in the views of these legislators, you don't want people sorted into oppressed and oppressor. That's very black and white. That's zero sum. And so that's good politics when you're bringing that type of stuff up, like these kids are winning and these kids are losing. I mean, that's kind of like the the journey we've taken in this podcast, right? Like a nation at risk, no child left behind, like all that stuff, right? That's about like positive sum, right? Like we will be stronger. You go back to like Sputnik, Right. And it's like, uh oh, like America needs like better schools. Right. The Russians are ahead. Yeah. You know, or the Chinese are going to get us now. Right. So it's like, look, we are all better off if kids learn more in school. Right. That's going to be a stronger economy, a stronger nation. That's like benefit, benefit, benefit. Then there's like you zoom to the micro and it's like, okay, I've got a kid. I want him to get into like the best program, the best high school, the best college. But other people want that for their kids. And like, that's, that's zero sum, right? Like, that's a nasty kind of knife fight. And depending on like what mode we're in, and we like reason about education, you can have very different kinds of takes, right? As to like, what's actually important here. Yeah. And I think, you know, about almost 40 years ago, there was a fight in West Virginia about textbooks involving like, hey, let's, let's bring in Allen Ginsberg and, and Malcolm X. And People were firebombing schools. The KKK showed up. People were praying for death for the board members who were on a certain side. This stuff is tough. And I'm not suggesting that we're heading in that direction where people are trying to blow up school buildings. But this stuff is difficult. And I think that there's like, hey, let's focus on the instrumentality of schools. And like, this is not it. But, you know, again, I do think that people view this as an important function for schools um, in terms of what they try to tell kids about their role as citizens and how they should understand um, this country. That's inevitable, right? We're not going to not have history classes, right? So it's sort of like, because that won't help you get a good job. You know, so we're going to have these history classes. What do we do about it? And how do we describe the Alamo, right? Which has been a, a huge controversy in Texas. You know, so I, I understand sort of the idea of like, hey, we used to have this talk about measuring students' growth on these important topics. And now this feels way out of left field. But I also think it's part of a recurring 
an important debate. You can't avoid it. Like you can't, and you can't wall schools off from it. Now, again, as you've been saying, this is like something that might feel strange or uh, novel to a lot of people in terms of how it's coming up. But, you know, I, I think if you listen to educators, they're saying, hey, this is going to make my job more difficult, or I'm not sure how to navigate this. And that's something that people should care about when people with important jobs, uh, you know, in public service are saying this could be tough. And, you know, several of these bills have been pre-filed for next year. So I don't think this is going away in a flash. So we'll see how that goes. All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. And I will uh, I will let you uh, move on with, with your busy day of discussing critical race theory with uh, many audiences, I understand it. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Andrew Jafusa. Uh, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Tanakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. When you surround yourself with the best tech, that's an instant level up. So shouldn't you level up in every room of your house? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object and cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings to match your exact preferences, from ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.